0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economy's editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Watt Watches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst.
2: David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Giles. I trust all our listeners are well and what a great podcast we've got this evening, I think. Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's um, it's
1: no, it's a terrific one actually with Ted Nace from Coalswarm, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you introduce that later and it was an interview conducted by yourself because I couldn't be there. Um, maybe that's sort of made it better, but look. This last week, I guess the week started with the IPCC report, which was really a call to action or a wake up call. Um, I guess it made two points, David. One is that we can still avert the worst um, effects of climate change, but we've got to get our act together very, very quickly. And I guess the other point is, is that there is a significant significant difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees. but um, this then to just wash right over the heads of the um, of the Australian government?
2: Well look I think to be fair it probably washed over the heads of a lot of people uh, worldwide. Of course it's a fantastic and important report and a lot of work has gone into it but it was very predictable uh, as well both what it would say I think and and also the reaction to it Um, um, and so Uh, that's, it didn't really change anyone's mind about anything very much in in and of itself. But having said that, what I am seeing, Giles, and I'm sure yours is on the news every night, whether it's the Wentworth election, whether it's the Queensland election, whether it's the South Australian election, whether it's the Victorian state election, we're seeing climate change is, is once more right up the top of the agenda. And I think we're seeing the isolation uh, or the paucity of the federal government policy on it uh, been, been, been coming clearer and clearer to everyone.
1: Well it's an interesting point you make there David because yes I mean look the IPCC report obviously didn't um, make them change their views about the issue and the need to act but just maybe just maybe it's going to be um, the result of the polls that finally, um, finally, finally does make them move.
2: Well, uh, you know, uh, that's right. And I I guess the next test is in the Victorian state election and we'll uh, never want to predict what's going to happen there. Look, the bottom line here is that climate change is an extremely serious issue. That's one of the main reasons we we, we do what we do, Giles. We, We see market evidence. It's not just public opinion surveys, but I've several times pointed to US real estate where a huge amount of data is available on house prices where you can statistically demonstrate that buyers of houses exposed to the threat of sea level rise uh, uh, will pay less for a house than they would six or seven years ago. That's right in the market price. It's discounted in the price. That's market evidence, quite independent of sentiment, quite independent of what political parties say, quite independent of what scientists actually say. The second thing uh, I'd say is having read the report and thought about it is I'm uh, off to see the Barrier Reef uh, as soon as I bloody well can because you can pretty much bet that in 20 years time it won't be there.
1: That's a sobering thought. Look, talking about data, um, I think it's probably a good o- opportunity to introduce our um, our guest for the week. Now, this is an interview that um, you did um, last Friday. Um, it's uh, Paul Nace from Swarm. Now, now, explain who Cold Swarm is and and, and why you wanted Paul on the program. It's <laughs> Ted, uh, sorry, Ted. <laughs> yes.
2: Ted Nace from Swarm. Look, uh, it's great to have Ted on here. He's been an activist in the looking at the coal industry for many years, as he, as he explains in, in the interview. Uh, and the wonderful thing about it is that he takes a very global focus. I think his work started out in the United States, but increasingly the Coal Swarm team, and this report was actually written by three or four people, um, it looked at, looks at a lot at China and looks at India. Coal Swarm itself has a global database uh, of every power plant under construction, and I think operating over 30 megawatts of coal-fueled. That is a fantastic global database. It shows what modern technology and crowd uh, sourcing and funding is able to accomplish. As he says in the interview, more than 150 academic studies are now using that database. But uh, let's see what Ted's got to say. So hi, and it's a welcome to Ted Nace, uh, who's the founder of Coal Swarm. How are you, Ted?
3: I'm pretty good. And uh, yeah, it's great to be able to talk to you.
2: Thanks, Ted. I, there's a quite a, I'd like to talk about Swarm's, uh latest report and what's going on in China. But I'd like, first of all, to get in a little bit of background about yourself, if I could. You've been in, involved in the what I might call limiting coal movement for quite a long time now. How did you get involved in that in the first place?
3: I actually grew up in a coal mining area in North Dakota. And uh, so when I was a teenager, I started working for the US Forest Service uh, building trails in the Badlands. And uh, there was a, a large coal mine planned for the Badlands, one of my favorite areas. So I, I actually wrote a paper for school, you know, looked into how people had opposed this mine. That might never happen, but I I also then a couple years later got involved with my family in starting a group there in in Western North Dakota to to oppose uh, this kind of development. It was mostly farmers and ranchers. Probably not not that similar not not that different from your uh, close close the gate movement is that what you call it in Australia, uh, landowners who who were not in, in interested in developing you know in having their land uh, you know destroyed by massive strip mine so so it's been a long time for me I'm I've been doing it for many years I took a hiatus and and uh, and and had a business career but then then after I sold my business I got back into it so yeah I um, I
2: think you uh, you um, started peach pit press with another and I've seen those books in bookshops and I I believe that business was quite successful and and you eventually, you and your partner sold that to, to Pearson's and you've then pretty much devoted yourself since then to the environmental movement, would that be fair to say?
3: Well, after I after I left uh, after I left that book publishing, I, I actually spent a while as a freelance writer for about ten years. So um, I wrote a book called uh, *Gangs of America*, which was about the development of corporate rights, and and then I wrote another book uh, about the climate movement, and and it sort of uh, sort of started getting interested in coal again after all those years. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I sort of, I've, I'm one of those people who's not, sort of knocked about and done this and that but this has been some of the most rewarding work i've ever done i mean it's very gratifying because there's such a big transition happening around the world and, and to be part of that and to see it happening and uh, you know to see it happening internationally it's just it's just been really a thrill actually
2: uh and i'm going to come on to that now because i think what impresses me most about uh coal swarm which as i understand it or grew out of uh, a group of people who were sort of semi-affiliated and it's become a much more organised kind of movement that seems to be uh, harnessing both people power and technology to produce a coordinated overview of what's going on in the coal-fuelled electricity industry. Is, Is that a way to think about it?
3: Uh, yes, uh, and 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 it mar- it it really started in I would I believe that it was a, a meeting that happened in Turkey in 2013 uh, that brought a lot of people together from many countries uh, who were already working on coal, but there hadn't been this coordinated effort until until then. Uh, and that's when we, we set up, you know, some formal lines of communication. You know, there's not a formal organization, but, but getting all those relationships started sometimes takes a face to face. And then, uh, there've been a lot of meetings since then, but it, it really is a very functional network. And there's some people like we do who work a little more on the tech end. And then there's other people who work more on the organizing end there's groups at the country level in uh very strong groups all around the world then there's the international ngos that have you know special resources so uh uh, you know um uh, there's there's people working at the finance end now there's people working in the governmental end uh there's people working in the divestment um and then there's of course people who are concerned about some particular project in a in a certain place so all those efforts complement each other and uh um yeah there's always something going on We, we have a we have a weekly newsletter that we send out uh that's a news digest of international coal developments called coal wire and it's free if anyone wants to get it they just have to go to end coal and sign up
2: i guess the most interesting thing to me uh is that the the basically coal swarm is now essentially tracking the progress of every new coal fired generator proposal over 30 megawatts. And of course, that inevitably brings us mostly to China and to a lesser extent to India. Um, Do you think uh, I guess my question is, on the technology side of things, uh, let's let's talk about a little bit about your latest uh, report, which is the I think 260 gigawatts of coal projects that uh, are under development and at one status or another in China. What gave you the idea to start using satellites to to uh, to track the progress of that development?
3: We have been watching China with special interest for several years. And, and you were right, it is the big player in coal. And everybody knows that they have half the coal plants in the world. And they've also done more than that in terms of the share of new coal plants built over the past uh, over the past 10 years. I think that the figure is approximately 90% of all the coal plants built around the world have been in Asia, and then within Asia, uh, China has had uh, oh, about uh, 75% of the Asian coal plants. So, or, or, or no, it's a little bit less, about two-thirds of the Asian coal plants. But when you when you come down to it, about 70% of all the new coal Fired power uh, generating capacity that's been added around the world uh, in the last decade or two has been in China. So, so we watch China closely. And uh, one thing that happened uh, uh, several years ago was, uh, well, at the beginning of 2016, um, there was uh, there, there was a lot of uh, attention to the idea that China had decided to um, to limit its coal building. There was sort of a, a lot of a lot of celebrating because. Uh, at some point, this this Chinese coal has to has to stop, just for the global climate picture. Premature um, celebrating, as it turned out. It, it turned out, and 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 the reason we had had an eye on it was actually goes back a couple more years. So in late 2014, um, the Chinese uh, uh, officialdom was looking at the situation, and at that point, they knew they had built too many power plants. I mean, they had so many extra coal plants. Uh, in operation that the average plant was running less than half the time they were they were supplying the needs of the country and yet not needing to run their their plants more than half the time so you know this is a kind of a classic uh, overcapacity situation it's very wasteful in terms of resources and the central government wanted to um, wanted to pull back and and stop the building the way they chose to do that, though, turned out to be almost exactly the opposite of what needed to be done. So in late 2014, they transferred the permitting authority for coal plants to the provinces from the central government. And and this is fascinating because China turns out to be a pretty complicated Placed, you know it's a it's a it's such a massive economy it's not all centrally run i think they their their idea was that in taking the decisions more to the local level they'd get better decisions but it turns out that these local uh, officials at the provincial level have have various incentives to build just build 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 it makes them look uh, like you know they're generating economic um, activity and it, and it looks good i think for them you know it's uh it's 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 uh, they might even get paid that's right. That's right. There, there's, uh, there's, there's that. Um, you know, uh, there's, there is corruption in, in China, but the upshot is that over the following, after they, after they moved permitting authority to the, per, to the provinces, starting in late 2014, for the next year, the permits went through the ceiling. They were tripling, even fivefold increases, to the point that within a little more than a year, China had approved as much coal, as many coal plants as the entire U.S. coal fleet. So on top of already having half the coal plants in the world, suddenly they're going to add another 25 percent. And so we had been watching that situation and wondering what would happen. Well, in early 2016, a series of central government measures were, were handed down You know, these edicts, uh, announcements. Uh, they, they would declare uh, 13 provinces to be red light for coal plants. Worldwide celebration, you know, it's that important for the climate movement. Uh, and, or they would publish a list of 100 coal plants that were supposed to stop, and there were headlines in the New York Times saying, you know, China cancels on 100 of its coal plants, um, you know, that are that are under development. Um, so. We had, you know, we had followed the sort of the party line on that, and we had been thinking ourselves that uh, China was really going to do a very uh, helpful slowdown in coal and that they would then uh, begin to actually phase out their coal fleet, maybe beginning in about five years from now. Um, coincidentally, we uh, we found a, a way to use satellite photography. Um, that is uh developed by a uh, a company here in san francisco called planet labs yeah so planet i'm interested Lab. about that too. just yeah.
2: just how did you find that way i mean i, I think we, we're seeing in a huge explosion there's another report out today we won't get time to talk about from from carbon tracker that have taken the satellite yeah. data up another league if i might say but i think you're the first to to show how it could be done uh, yeah, uh, how, you know, uh, 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 I'm interested in just a, one minute on the technical side of that. Yeah, how you came up with the idea and, and how hard it is to write the software to use it, you know, and, and where did you sure. get the software resources from that, that kind of stuff?
3: Yeah. So um, uh, we always used we, we, we we've always used uh, Google Earth and I probably a lot of people here listening to this podcast know Google Earth. You know, it's a great way to um, you know, it's a great thing to use it. It's uh, it's basically Google Maps with satellite views. The problem with using Google Earth, we've actually used it to investigate uh, uh, the status of coal plants. Since we have to update our database every every six months, we, we go in and we actually look at the photographs of the satellite photographs that Google Earth has. But unfortunately, Google Earth, uh, the pho- photographs are often really out of date. And so, looking for other satellites is where, where what brought us to Planet Labs. Uh, we were, you know, just asking around. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how we made the specific connection, but the next thing we knew in, in late March, we got a complimentary uh, chair at the table, you know, with the ability to download these Planet Labs photos. And I gotta say, you don't have to be very technical. You just plug in a, a latitude and a longitude location, you plug in a date and you get a photograph. And the the the, the interesting thing about Planet is that they they have a s- satellites that go over the North Pole and over the South Pole in just a, a fixed orbit. So as the world turns, they keep photographing, kind of like the way a scanner works. With a you know with the Earth rotating underneath, they stay in the same place. And they have quite a few of these satellites. They put them in low orbit. They're not expensive satellites. They're small. They they're up there for a couple of years, then they fall out of the sky, burn up, and you know, uh, they get replaced. But this has this is what they they call it the global scanner is the way they, they refer to it. and and this is exactly the type of thing they wanted to do with it. Well, it turns out in order to pay the bills, they sell this uh, photography to people like hedge funders who you know want to know how many cars are are, are parked in the apple parking lot after midnight to see sure if sure i'm an ex-investment
2: investment in banking inv- analyst and uh yeah. I, we were always interested in things like brick inventories at the neighbor neighboring brick factory so now you don't <laughs> even send a drone up you just use the daily satellite photo but let, let's keep going
3: <laughs> yeah yeah so we we what happened is we had a complimentary subscription to planet labs and the kind of thing they let a bank used to see if they want to purchase a lot of photographs so we actually just quickly took photographs of all the sites that we were questioning in china and um uh you know took that and, and we had the data we needed for this particular report so that's the story uh we're you know we're in discussions we've been in discussions ever since to buy more planet labs photography um you know it's fabulously expensive though um the the amount of photography that we The amount of money we'd need is something between 2 and $3 million to replicate this.
2: Um, That's a a lot of money. And what, of course, the photograph showed is that a lot of the plants have continued to develop. And I I want to uh, bring up a a broader point um, that, in fact, states uh, and provinces in China run contrary to China federal policy. As as this report shows, and but that's not just in China. Of course, we see in the United States that California and to a lesser extent even Texas run contrary to federal United States policies with decarbonisation. Here in Australia, we have we have states that run different policies. In Europe, different countries. So it's you know I guess it's the thinking global, acting local, local type of thing. But how do you see things playing out in China? Do you see the central government regaining control of the situation?
3: Uh, I, th- I th- that's that's our hope um, we hope that they it, that it's you know, they see it in their interest not to waste this kind of money I mean we're talking about hundreds of millions of, of, do- of US dollars in 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 wasted capital uh, you know if those coal plants are built that money could be could could be per- repurposed to you know uh, clean energy and that's the sector they really want to be building up anyway because that's where the future of you know international commerce is going so that's the you know that's the bas- the big business opportunity but you know at the moment China's uh... You know, they recently cut their favorable subsidies for their solar industry and the solar industry is really struggling in China right now. It's really, really cut cut back. And some of the biggest country, companies are, you know, having trouble paying the bills in China. They've always
2: had trouble, Ted. Ever since I've looked at those, they've all delisted from the U.S. exchanges because the solar industry, it's been great for consumers, but the industry has always been, it's a commodity. Let's face it, those solar things and uh, the new technology brings the cost down uh, very rapidly and I guess what I see when I look at China right now is that electricity consumption is growing. And this, of course, makes room for new capacity of one sort or another. Um, uh, On the other hand, the coal price is is internationally is very high because China was more successful at closing down some of its old coal mines, which means it needs to import coal today. But they won't let that last, will they? I mean, the, the current situation is that China's electricity is actually getting more expensive because of the coal and as you say the amount of invested capital is going up uh, quite a lot um, if consumption I think it depends really what happens to consumption to an extent doesn't it as well as as well as policy.
3: Yeah, and it, you know it's a it's an interesting economy. I mean, for for several years the, the the mining companies will be doing very poorly, and 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 they'll be barely you know they won't be paying their staff and, and and borrowing money from their employees, if you if you believe the stories, and then they'll shift policy, and then the power companies will be you know scraping and, and scrounging, and and the mining companies will be doing well. So it's it's just it's just a, a whole different kind of economy. Um, but um, yeah, consumption is the driver now everybody uh, expected that china would keep increasing consumption all the way to 2030 and then actually since 2013 there were there were at least three years of, of declining um, uh, electricity consumption and or at least electricity consumption of coal you know they had good hydro years uh, they but they also uh, were uh, you know they've been shifting their economy away from heavy industry and that and that uh, that improves the you know that improves the efficiency less less electricity per unit of GDP. Um, just last year, though, that the, the you know the amount of electricity has soared again in China. The consumption of electricity has has increased. I think that's
2: related to the to the property boom. Myself, uh, I think that you know it's not just in China. If you look at say cement, fifty eight, nearly sixty percent of all the world's cement is currently consumed in China. I'm surprised the country doesn't sink under the weight of it all. Uh, and, and that shows that there's this massive construction boom. And I think that's the materials for that that use up a lot of the one sure. reason why the electricity is increasing. And I, they
3: had a bad hydro year, too. So that makes a big difference in China.
2: It, 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 and it does. And, and I guess the share of coal. I, let me ask, what's coal swarm going to do next? Are you going to keep... Uh, Uh, tracking these plants? Is the focus going to stay on China? um, uh, Do you find support for coal swarm is is growing and continuing to grow? I mean, it's a fantastic, I think, uh, example, one of the best I've ever seen of how a grassroots movement can become organised and thorough and and become one of the most powerful uh, uh, sources of research information uh, that every media organisation is going to be coming to coal swarm because you guys have got the best data. Data is king.
3: It's 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 true, and you know, and we're benefiting from um, you know sort of a sea change in how d- data you know works. And and the, and the, the so just just to talk about what people would be doing if we didn't have our uh, database, um, they would buy a database from a commercial vendor for five or six thousand dollars. The commercial vendor that has been you know dominant in in the power sector is called Platts. And my understanding is the way they, they gather the data has generally been from uh, company surveys. So they survey the companies that build power plants, ask them what they've got planned, and you know it's not a bad way to do it. But when you come down to it with the number of sort of unusual players out there and, and at the global scale, and so many different you know countries with so many language challenges, it's really hard for any single team to outdo what you can do with crowdsourcing these days so it's the same reason so many people constantly go to wikipedia for information you can constant, you can have what in effect is a, fa- a footnoted fact sheet that's always improving and that draws from expertise on the ground in the local country so it's hard to beat that and you know right now if if you if you look at the footnotes in the ipcc report that just came out last weekend you know our 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 database was there but also studies done you know peer-reviewed studies that used our database so uh you know our database is used by bloomberg terminals it's used um by the iea by uh, the oecd by the world bank uh you know pretty much by every agency even even by trump's uh, energy administration energy department um and of course it gets used by ngos so we feel like we have you know we have plenty to do and we have plenty of people who want to use this data there have been at least 150 studies that have used it and uh and i have to say it's it's really been a marvel because of crowdsourcing um and uh it's almost like you know the work sort of does itself when you have so many researchers around the world who are all contributing um yeah, I think it's I, I do think it's a model and I think it's uh, you know right now we're we 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 were asked by people in the uh, the movement that's working on oil pipelines and uh, and gas pipelines. That movement wanted a symbol, similar resource. So we're we're we've released a tracker for oil and gas pipelines and uh, LNG terminals and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah i think i think this is a great tool and i and and i and i you know i'm i'm happy to help any group that wants to to set one up
2: ted we're going to run out of time here uh, unfortunately because I, I i could have talked to you for an hour about it and i'm sure the underlying history of how it all got together is is incredibly fascinating but but i have to stay very focused myself i i i and i point out to anyone to go to the um uh, coal swarm pages and 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 look at the database this is the second year it's been going since 2008 i think that i've uh, really started to use it and it's kind of come into its own and become very comprehensive and i'd also recommend to anyone listening who wants to see the next step up in in the satellite data of how carbon tracker is looking at these photographs daily i don't know how where they get two or three million from but uh, to look at the amount of smoke or water vapour coming out of uh, coal plants and, and measure capacity utilisation. It is just incredible the way that crowdsourcing and technology can be harnessed, but I think also it takes an entrepreneur, uh, someone who's worked very hard for most of his life and career on and off at, at doing this, and someone with a bit of vision and intelligence. So, Ted. Once again, congratulations on on starting and seeing something through that's really making a difference.
3: Oh, you're you're very kind, and you know, and I and I and I do think uh, you know there are there are public satellite resources out there from Eurostat that don't cost anything. Um, you know, they aren't quite as good, but uh, you know, we'll we'll use what we <laughs> we'll use what we can afford, <laughs> and uh, we'll make it work. <laughs> Well, but, thanks uh, again, Ted. And, and, and thank you so
2: much. Uh, keep it, keep it going. Cheers. Now. Okay. Take care.
1: And that was Ted Nace from Swarm. So, David, um, great interview. Really interesting, um, really interesting guy. Wrote the book of Gangs of America. Maybe it's time to um, have, a, have a have an Australian version, Gangs of Australia. I wonder what we write about.
2: <laughs> Look, I think people have already written about Gangs of Australia, but it wasn't about corporate America. <laughs> There's a fair few gangs, and I suspect you could write a book about Gangs of Chicago as well. But anyway, let's go.
1: Yeah, OK. Look, um um, look, anyway, now I just think gangs of gang, gangs of Australia, but I think um, Clive Hamilton um, did that with the uh, the fossil fuel mafia. But um, anyway, that was about a decade ago. But it probably needs a bit of a rethink or, or, or an up to date. Look, it's interesting, during the week, um, there was the AFR Conference um, Energy Summit in Sydney. Now, um, look, this is interesting only because a lot of the very senior people get together, as is the one at the, um, at the AFR summits. But the one thing that really struck me, David, is this issue, and we kind of raised it with our interview in, in, in Origin um, Energy recently, is this, they're all talking about the customer, but they really don't have any idea about actually how to meet the needs of the customer and how to actually keep up with some of those technology developments, as we saw when we were down to all energy conference and the sort of behind the meter stuff and all, all, all the enabling technologies. They're really trying to figure out what the heck that business model in 5, 10, 15 years is going to look like.
2: Yeah, well, I agree. It's uh, And we have to wait and see. That's the wonderful thing about this industry is it is being disrupted and there is a lot of technology going on. Uh, The AFR conference gets a lot of focus on electricity and energy from senior people, and and it's great to hear them all talking about it. Uh, The likes of you and I tend to avoid it, I guess, because it's at a a broader and more general level than, than what we like to get into. Uh, But I I did think it was important to see that the Business Council is actually thinking of taking matters into their own hands. Whether that amounts to anything or not, I don't think is less important than the uh, signal it's sending to to all about how seriously they're taking things. As far as all energy goes, I I don't know about you, but a few years ago, uh, only three or four years ago, it was possible to look at batteries, as like an out there thing, a hobbyist kind of thing. Now, when you go down to that conference and look at the development inverters, look at the software that's been used, uh, look at the distributed energy plans uh, and and look at the battery enclosures, you can see very much how this industry is is so much in the mainstream. If you look in Queensland, 30% of houses have now got uh, solar on their roofs and it's the same in South Australia. Uh, That leaves an awful long way to go, but it also shows how important that industry has become to all of us. And as you know, there's quite a debate going on about control of the rooftop solar industry and uh, what's the best way uh, to use it from the system's perspective, but of course from the owner's perspective as well.
1: Well, that's right yes and i think one of the things of all energy is that sort of battery storage is no no longer just a piece of hardware to be sort of flown into the house or the basement or the um or the garage but also sort of part of a sort of you know an interconnected um system um which could be good for homeowners but also good for the grid itself and um it was interesting just to hear the difference i think between what some of the people were saying in the um at the afr conference about sort of wholeheartedly supporting the removal of the ESRES in a couple of years. Now, um, there's obviously a bit of an invested interest here um, from the retailers because if, um, as Victoria proposes to do, it wants to connect up another 600,000 households with rooftop solar and help them do that, then that's potentially $500 million hollowed out of the retail take for the big utilities. Um, fortunately, it was uh, gratifying to hear Audrey Zieberman talking about um, rooftop solar, distributed energy, saying, look, really, you can't really stop this. It's really time to embrace it and actually figure out how to integrate that within the system, take take advantage of its assets. And I guess if you're actually talking about changing um, changing incentives and rebates, then maybe there's a smarter, maybe just rather than just talking about obliterating them, maybe there's a smarter way to actually encourage more storage.
2: Look, the integrated system plan has demonstrated, and it's been the least remarked part of it, that the, the biggest uh, a system in the future that has distributed storage, distributed solar, has four billions of savings uh, according to that modelling over one that doesn't. I, I, so I keep saying that that's part's been ignored. I do think the challenge is not the solar industry now, it's how to make get the batteries into households. And I say that because I think in the long run, that can do a lot. If, if every household or lots of households have a small amount of storage, uh, that, that can help a lot with managing peak demand one way or another. And, and the trick is to get the batteries out there and get the communications in and then figure out how to make it all work afterwards. Uh, figuring it out, how to make it work is the easy part. Now, you know what we're worried about is people uh, gaming or otherwise, I mean, as we've been remarking, I'm sure on the solar Uh, Insider's podcast, we see the same thing. The fact is battery prices at the residential level are just not moving. They're moving everywhere else. Car battery prices are coming down, uh, industrial battery prices are coming down for stationary energy, but at the household level, they're going up, not down, and that you know, we, nothing's really going to happen until we make these things a bit more price attractive.
1: Absolutely. In, in, incidentally, um, over the weekend, Tesla sent me an email confirming that uh, the price of their Tesla Power Wall, as we reported um, exclusively just over a week ago, um, is actually rising by a reasonably significant level, about $2,000, I think, once everything is included. So, um, so yes, indeed. Um, just one final thing, um, David. Um, look, we did see a couple of solar plants um, joining the grid last week. Um, I thought the most interesting one was Telstra's um, Emerald Solar Farm. That's sort of you know an, another signpost of the way that business is turning to um solar to sort of um, lock in lower prices and have visibility over 15 20, 25 years of their prices but um, the one thing that intrigued me and i'm interested in your response the um aemc report the australian energy market commission was asked to look at by the look by the look at by the federal government the incidence of gaming in australia wholesale market after various reports um they couldn't find any interestingly enough just lack of competition but i think it's a game of semantics isn't it
2: uh, it, it probably is. Look, I'm sure there is gaming from time to time. Uh, it's uh, virtually certain that in South Australia, AGIL's position there, uh, they use that position and I don't blame them for doing that. It's just a natural thing to do. Uh, I do think that the, these new solar plants and wind plants are, and the rooftop solar are of themselves creating more competition. And I expect that the big guys are going to be moving much more into the dispatchable energy once all this new wind and solar is fully ramped up. And it's uh, that's, we really have to make a judgement uh, when, when it has. And we're also looking, of course, for some new policy development. Uh, because it's a, it's a good time to be having a bit of a pause on these wind and solar plants, if you have to have a pause, because we're starting to get grid constrained and connection constrained. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're going to need a new wave uh, of ideas and projects fairly soon.
1: Absolutely. If, 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 if for nothing else, than to replace the coal-fired generation that's going to retire over the next couple of years. David, um, before I say thank you, and it's going to thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watchers, for your continued and ongoing support. They've been with us right from the beginning, and that's fantastic. Um, David, thanks for that interview with Coalsall, and that was fantastic.
2: Look, it's great uh, It's uh, to be able to interview people like Ted who make a real difference over a long period of time. Uh, we've already given Simon Corbell, for instance, a pat on the back. Uh, and there are others whose contribution, they don't always want to be up in lights, but uh, they make a big difference. And look, China, uh, where Australia has to do its own bit, arguably we should be taxing coal exports, but that's never going to happen. You've just got to go for what you can. But. Uh, uh, What happens in China is incredibly important. Uh, We've already seen state governments, state-level provinces can get in the way of national policy for good and for bad. So uh, let's keep going.
1: Good on you, David. Thank you. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.